What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with the top athletes, scientists, experts, and more. Learn what the best in the world are doing and learn what you can do to perform your best. All right. Whoop is on a mission to unlock human performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop. And this week, we got a great episode. We're going to go deep on sleep debt and how sleep deprivation affects your body. But first, a reminder, you can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, get 15% off a WHOOP membership, actually have a tool that really accurately measures sleep, among other things, recovery, exercise, the health monitor, bunch of great features. Check that out, WHOOP.com, use the code WILL. Our VP of Performance, Fearless Leader, Kristen Holmes, is back and joined by sleep expert, Dr. Allison Brager. Dr. Brager is a neurobiologist and a major with the United States Army, and her research has covered survival in extreme environments under sleep deprivation and stress. So those of you who think you work a little too much and have trouble sleeping, these are going to be some extreme environments that we're talking about. She sits on fatigue management and neuroenhancement working groups for NATO, the Office of the Army Surgeon General, and a variety of government agencies including the Department of Defense and NASA. She's also a member of the WHOOP Women's Performance Collective. Kristen and Dr. Brager discuss how to understand sleep debt and sleep need, groundbreaking WHOOP research about how sleep debt affects our next day cognitive functioning, what we know about banking sleep before anticipated periods of less sleep, why fragmented sleep can have such a negative effect on us, and everything you need to know about caffeine and how it impacts the chemicals in your body. This is a fun one. It's a really good one if you're into sleep. And without further ado, here are Kristen and Dr. Brager. Dr. Allison Brager is a neurobiologist with expertise in sleep and circadian rhythms for the United States Army. Her work examines the substrates and mechanism of resiliency to extreme environmental stress, um, including exercise, jet lag, um, and sleep deprivation. Uh, Dr. Brager has over 30 peer-reviewed publications in flagship journals and is the author of a very popular science book entitled Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. And by the way, no big deal, a two-time CrossFit Games and regional competitor. Phew, Allison, welcome. Oh, it's so great to be here. I, I'm just so stoked to talk about sleep, especially since it's uh, Sleep Awareness Month. Exactly. Yeah, it's very topical. And just being able to leverage your expertise in kind of all things sleep is going to be really cool. And I'm excited to, to kind of tap in particularly to sleep deprivation and really try to help folks understand exactly what that is, what it looks like. Um, and I think most importantly, the the strategies and tools to kind of break the cycle of, of sleep debt. You know, as we know, our, our world isn't really set up uh, to, to kind of uh, facilitate optimal sleep. So, you know, it's, uh, I think, something that we have to really develop boundaries and skills around and, uh, and and can't wait to get your perspective on on all of that. You know, obviously, as a, as a soldier and, you know, you've experienced firsthand the conditions of sleep deprivation. Um, and obviously, as a scientist, you've been able to research the effects of sleep debt. Maybe start by just kind of outlining, you know, what is this phenomena of sleep debt <laughs> and, um, and that maybe how it's different from poor sleep. Okay. So sleep debt is different than poor sleep because sleep debt is basically poor sleep accrued over time. You've heard this analogy before. We treat, we think of sleep as a bank account. And so the more you take out, the more you have to repay. Now you can actually bank on sleep. And we know that phenomenon works because we have done countless studies at Walter Reed to show 
that loading up on sleep prior to anticipated sleep deprivation improves cognitive, emotional, and even such things as pain tolerance. So that is like how we think of the relationship of sleep debt. Now, poor sleep is a component of sleep debt. So poor sleep can be a single night of sleep deprivation where, or of poor, fragmented, unconsolidated sleep. Um, so obviously a, a whoop score that is in the red. But then you can also have poor sleep where you consistently have scores in the red, even if you're doing all the right things, such as sleep coaching, hydration, nutrition, etc. But yeah, sleep debt is the biggest problem. So that's like the the macroscopic problem and poor sleep is uh, an element of sleep debt. Got it. If that makes okay. sense. It does. Yep. Now that we kind of have an understanding of just, all right, what is sleep debt? Let's talk a little bit about set points and, and just how everyone has kind of a different sleep need. And then we can kind of back into some of the, the components of, of sleep deprivation. But I think that it's important for everyone just to understand that we don't all need to spend the same amount of time in bed and kind of what influences that and what do you know about it based on your research? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And that's one I get asked a lot. Um, so obviously, the recommendations of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the National Sleep Foundation is between seven and nine hours per night. Um, and the reason that is, is because the international average of sleep need is 8.4 hours. That is something that has been determined through years and years of anthropological and very large-scale epidemiological studies of sleep in different cultures. So it's not just factoring in how Americans sleep, it's Europeans and even um, like tribal communities in sub-Sahara Africa. Like 8.4 is the human biological need for sleep. But there's a huge standard deviation and standard error with that. Um, and we know that especially when we look at high performers in society. So historically, if you look at the U.S. presidents, most of them are short sleepers. Um, Bill Clinton is probably the most famous president who only needed about three or four hours per sleep per night. Uh, president Obama was similar. Same with CEOs and executives. Um, you know, I used to think when I first heard about how little Elon Musk slept, I, at first I was like, well, that explains some of his other behaviors. But then I started to realize, it's like, no, there actually are a handful of corporate executives who have essentially self-selected uh, because of being short sleepers, which is a rare genetic mutation. That's what I like to emphasize. It is <laughs> yes. because of a rare genetic mutation of a gene called DEC2, DEC2, that they are able to do that. But most of the population falls within the bell curve in normal distribution of needing 8.4 hours per sleep per night. And unfortunate people are in the far other tail of the distribution where they need 10 to 11 hours of sleep per night. Um, it's called hypersomnia. And it sucks for them, but unfortunately, their genetic programming has wired them that way. Yeah, that's an incredible uh, explanation. And I, and I think it's, you know, because I think these leaders are obviously so visible and their sleep habits are, are talked about, people think that that's okay. I can adopt that lifestyle as well. But I think to your, your point is a, a very important one that this is a very small percentage of the population have this gene. And, and in fact, you know, folks are being pre-selected into these fields, you know, that actually require less sleep at night, which is, I think it just, I've never actually heard that point made. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, 
quite honestly, and I've told soldiers this before, generals, they're the same way where they pre-select the short sleepers and then also early morning people. I am a vampire. My parents are vampires and I need eight hours. So I will never have any hopes and dreams of ever being anyone important at that level in the military because my genetic programming does not conform with that. And if I tried, I would probably get sick. So just as it relates to kind of the Woot platform, we have what's called a, a sleep need algorithm that basically tells you, based on a whole bunch of uh, different factors, how much time you actually need to be spending in bed. The algorithm looks at your baseline sleep need. Um, it looks at sleep that you've accumulated. It looks at your day strain. It looks at any naps you might have taken. Um, and then basically we give you a sleep need recommendation. I remember we, we were talking about these recommendations and a lot of sleep scientists push back on this sleep need recommendation for, you know, it's a black box. It's an algorithm. It's proprietary. We don't share it. But one of the kind of my personal missions, you know, it just seems really on point in terms of, you know, when I listen to whoop sleep need recommendations, like I fare much better. Um, and, and that goes for, you know, like I'm not good if I spend too much time in bed. So if I oversleep, I end up with a poorer recovery the next day. So, you know, it just the end of one and all the data that I was, you know, I've been exposed to, it just seemed to really prove to be, um, you know, valid, these recommendations. So we did a study in collaboration with the University of Queensland, uh, University of Melbourne, and we looked at basically the influence of sleep, stress, and HRV on cognitive control. And one of the kind of happy findings of the study is, is we saw that with individuals who accumulated um, 45 minutes of sleep debt, they had a 5 to 10% decrease on next day executive function and cognitive control. It, it was just like this really happy finding in that it kind of validated, you know, kind of in a backdoor way validated these sleep need recommendations because we saw on these cognitive control tasks, we saw, you know, very clearly decrements in kind of these cognitive tasks. So it was kind of an interesting, yeah, so just love to get your thoughts on that. Well, I'm sure, let me ask you this first, was it an exponential relationship and that it, the greater the delta between sleep need and actual sleep um, reported uh, there was greater it, yes. uh, cognitive. Yeah. So, so the more, so that was just, you know, at 45 minutes, we saw five to 10. And then at 90 minutes, we saw greater, you know, it wasn't a perfect exponential relationship in the sense that it wasn't 5%, let's say at 45 minutes. And then at 90 minutes, it was uh, 10%. It wasn't like that, but we would see uh, 11% declined in some individuals. But so it was, it was definitely, it would, there would be a deleterious effect, um, an increasing deleterious effect, the more time, the more sleep that you accumulated. Nope, I'm not surprised at all. So that actually uh, mirrors the findings that we found out in the operational environment when we're looking at sleep amounts and combat effectiveness. Uh, so the Army has actually been doing this since the Gulf War. Um, I don't know if you know this. The Army developed the first act of watch uh, yes. back in the 90s. Uh, now retired Colonel Greg Belinke, wonderful, huge contributor in the sleep field. Um, and, and he's really the reason why I came to Walter Reed is because I wanted to carry on this legacy that Greg built. Um, and he found like direct relationships between total sleep time, uh, downrange, and next day military performance. Um, and when I was deployed four years ago and we did a similar study with the 1st Armored Division um, back down in Kuwait, uh, we found very similar results where their, however much sleep they had 24 hours prior mirrored how they performed on marksmanship activities um, with Abrams tanks. So wow. it's it's not a surprise, and I think it's very similar to what we see in the lab, like the classic lab studies where they use the psychomotor vigilance test, yes. which is a test of reaction time. Very valid. 
um, you see an exponential decline in performance based on hours of lost sleep. Yep. I think I feel like I read that. That's like, it, it starts at like a hundred milliseconds, right? Like it's like something like, mm-hmm. and it just goes to shit after that. Like, <laughs> yep, exactly. Maybe we can kind of dig into just the, the physical and, and psychological symptoms of, of someone who's experiencing sleep debt. You know, I think obviously if you're wearing whoop, you can kind of start to see it accumulate. A lot of times folks actually can't perceive their own cognitive physical declines. So maybe start there with just maybe the literature on, do we even know if we have sleep debt? You know, like say we don't have access to a whoop, we don't, we're not looking at our sleep architecture. You know, how do we know that we're not getting sufficient sleep? Sure. And I definitely think it's all related. So despite all these technologies we have now at our disposal to monitor and mitigate any amount of sleep debt and all the objective measures we have to look at sleep debt. I mean, we can even predict sleep debt now through neuroimaging. But despite all of that, the single one question that is still the most predictive factor of if somebody will have decrements in next day performance is if you ask somebody when they wake up in the morning, how well did you sleep? And based on their answer, it almost mirrors how they perform. So even if they got crappy sleep, like say they're an athlete competing in the CrossFit Games, they got crappy sleep the night before, but they kind of expect they're going to get crappy sleep. If they wake up and they're like, well, I slept okay given the circumstances, they are more likely to have their performance protected uh, because the brain is a very adaptive organ and it will find a way to protect that individual because it is in the psychological state that I am ready to perform. Now that's under a certain circumstance though, when you're otherwise sleep satiated. So people who are chronically sleep deprived, that question actually would not hold true, but in a normal healthy sleeper who sleeps satiated, that question would hold true. So your mindset can move you around pretty significantly and and protect you if you actually are functioning on lower sleep debt. And we definitely hear this, anecdotally all the time, you know, that I had, I PR'd and I got two hours of sleep, you know, or, you know, some people actually literally cannot sleep at all, like prior to like a big competition. But I think to your point, if they have good sleep leading up to that event, that event, that night sleep in of itself is not going to impact next day performance. And they will, will be able to compensate with just, you know, their mindset and just getting themselves into a place where they can compete. That's interesting. Do we know when we no longer have the ability to kind of tap into our mindset to kind of move that around? Like, what is that point? Uh, Three days. And we know this from quite a few studies. Um, We know this from an endocrine perspective. If you look at the classic studies looking at drops in testosterone with um, sleeping only five hours a night across a week, day three is the tipping point. Um, And we also know this from studies we've done at Walter Reed with uh, cognition that Uh, cognition continues to decline until sleep needs are met again. Um, And that caffeine actually has zero protection against that decline by three days in. So uh, we've we've studied this a lot of different ways, but three days of chronic sleep debt where you're basically losing about 60% of your total uh, sleep amounts. So that's the thing. It's not going to be five hours for everyone. It's going to be 60% of your daily sleep need by day three, of only getting 60%, you're, you're on a, a, you know, cataclysmic decline. Wow. So people who are drinking caffeine and thinking they're, you know, they're basically just making bad decisions faster. <laughs> is that what I mean? 
yeah, pretty much. Actually, yeah. funny enough, so in this study, um, it, it was published in the flagship journal of sleep. Uh, one of my colleagues published it, tr- uh, Dr. Tracy Jill Doty. She found that um, the caffeine group actually performs worse. So the people who are supplementing with caffeine um, on you know the same amount of sleep debt as somebody who wasn't supplementing on caffeine, they actually perform worse by post day three because they no longer have that protection of caffeine and they know it. So their mindset changes and they don't perform well again until they get sleep again. To the points you're just, you're just making, we use caffeine to make up for, for lost sleep or, you know, to help us perform. Like what is actually happening there? Cause I think people think that that's a substitute for sleep in a lot of ways. So maybe take it from, from that angle and, and kind of talk about how that's not the case and how we need to reframe or rethink our relationship with caffeine. That is the best question you, you have asked so far. Cause that's exactly what people think is that you can replace sleep with caffeine and as I said from that one study, that is not the case at all. Um, so the reason why caffeine is effective is because it prevents the uh, release of the neurochemical adenosine. So adenosine is a neurochemical that is released by um, glia cells that in- increases as you become more sleepy. Um, and so throughout the day, from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed at night, you see a precipitous increase in adenosine. But what caffeine can do is it can block the rate at which adenosine is increasing. And so thereby it can minimize overall sleepiness. If you adhere to a very specific caffeine dosing schedule, which we can get into later. But the problem is, even if caffeine is decreasing the slope of adenosine release, you still need to make sure that you replenish the system. And so caffeine cannot do that. The system has to be replenished through sleep. And the reason for that is because sleep is then when adenosine triphosphate, which is one of the main you know, sources of adenosine, um, needs to be replenished. So all the, the basic cellular energy substrates of creatine, adenosine triphosphate, uh, adenosine diphosphate, all that stuff that we need in order to stay alive and function only gets replenished with sleep, not with a supplement like caffeine. I think we can say that, you know, stimulants when whoop recovery is low is, is not going to help you recover faster. That's one of the things that we really have worked really hard at Walter Reed to sort of nail down is this precise dose, dosing of caffeine administration. We know that 200 milligrams is the maximum amount of caffeine you can handle at any given time. Anything else is more or less a ceiling effect. Beyond just 200 milligrams, you can only take 200 milligrams every three to four hours. So that's another thing you have to consider. It's not just the amount, it's the timing. And as long as you stop six to eight hours before bed, you're fine because the metabolism of caffeine, it does extremely vary by individual. Um, And that's also genetically determined. But six to eight hours is a good time frame where you could still get, you know, sleep, even if you're supplementing with caffeine three or four different times throughout the day. I mean, I routinely do that, but, and it, you know, I have no issue sleeping at night. 
we all metabolize caffeine a bit differently so that, you know, range is going to is gonna change slightly from person to person or vary from person to person. So you kind of have to play around with it and figure out, all right, look at your sleep onset latency, you know, look at your, you know, you know that kind of early bit of sleep, I think, um, to, to know whether or not it's actually impacting you. But I think, too, like with folks with chronic sleep deprivation, caffeine is probably not going to, when they go to put their head on the bed, even though they may have, have, ca- have ca- had caffeine at like 7 o'clock at night, like they're so exhausted, they're going to fall asleep quickly. But maybe talk about the fragmentation that occurs, you know, which just kind of further contributes to kind of this poor sleep cycle. Yes, that's a great point because um, I think that's one thing we don't talk about enough. And I was having a conversation yesterday with somebody about this. Is like we care so much about sleep amount that we forget that actually one of the biggest culprits of poor sleep and the biggest contributors to all the health factors that result from poor sleep is sleep fragmentation. That is the key. Like all those people who have sleep disorders, it's not so much their lack of sleep, it's their inability to cycle effectively through sleep cycles because they're constantly being woken up and can't complete a sleep cycle. And so caffeine can have a very similar impact is like, sure, you might be exhausted enough where you fall asleep, but you're still going to pretty much stay because of the adenosine blockage in the lighter stages of sleep and not reach the most deepest restorative stages of what we call non-REM slow wave sleep. Because actually the uh, expression of slow wave sleep is dependent on uh, adenosine circulation. And so when adenosine circulation is low because it's inhibited by caffeine, you're not going to get slow wave sleep. But if adenosine circulation can be high, then you're going to get the restorative sleep where you get the you know testosterone boost, the growth hormone boost, and all the physical restoration you need in order to function the next day. Maybe I'm overstating this, but I, I know that some sleep researches have almost, I think, claim a causal effect between kind of sleep deprivation and, and Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, and, and eventually Alzheimer's. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the research that exists around that and, and what's happening in the brain, you know, when we're not activating kind of this sewage system? Exactly. So the sewage system you're referring to, this uh, process of waste clearance and uh, regeneration of neuronal connections is called the glymphatic system. And and that's basically what it is. It's a sewage system for your brain. Um, And during sleep, what happens is the glymphatic system, it's fluid-based. So during sleep, the vessels or the pipes of the sewage system are um, bigger than they are during wake. And if they don't have the opportunity to be bigger during sleep, then it decreases the flow and the flushing out of these wastes and toxins from your brain and your body. Um, And so that's one of the the key findings related to Alzheimer's is because we find that Alzheimer's is a direct relationship with neurotoxic buildup of these uh, plaques. And then also when you talk about, they're called neurofibrillary tangles, they result because of not having the the ability of sleep to go through the repair processes. There's almost irreversible brain damage that results from this sleep deprivation um, and this inability to clear these beta amyloid plaques because of reduced sleep. Well, you know, I don't want to terrify folks without giving them kind of tools and strategies. So we, we will get to tools and strategies. Oh, but I know. It, I, I know. It, but, you know, I think that this is part of the public health education, right, is understanding 
the impact, you know, of, of, of short sleep and insufficient sleep, low quality sleep and, you know, how that uh, impacts our longevity. And, and, and maybe if we can just talk in addition, you know, we just talked about what's happening in the brain, but, you know, maybe just the linkages uh, of sleep deprivation to things like cancer and, you know, cardiovascular disease and obesity and, you know, some of these other, you know, kind of significant health problems and knowing that root cause is, is insufficient sleep. Sure. Um, well, we do know now that shift work is considered to be uh, a level two carcinogen by the World Health Organization. We know on average now that shift work, which always results in insufficient sleep, um, takes about 10 to 15 years off your life and significantly increases your risk for cancer, especially if you're already at risk because of your family. And then same increased risk for metabolic and cardiometabolic disorders, with the reason being is because you miss out on these opportunities to repair the body. I mean, that, that's essentially what happens during sleep is you have whole body and whole brain repair. The whole brain repair, a lot of that happens during REM sleep, but the whole body repair is like what the deep restorative sleep is for. And if you already have a sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea, well, you're never going to fully activate those repair processes because unless you're treated for sleep apnea, you're missing out on the ability to even enter those deep restorative stages of sleep because your body is waking you up well before that because you can't breathe. You said before that it, you know, it's kind of your your sleep is going to start, you know, the kind of the, the, the moment you wake up in the morning and you know, shift workers obviously aren't having the benefit of natural sunlight and, you know, they're, they're working during, you know, the night and, and sleeping during the day, you know, talk a little bit about what other cues can those folks anchor to, to help regulate the system and maybe mitigate the effects of, of not getting the light exposure that they need during the right times, just that signal to, signaling isn't activating. So I would love to hear you talk about, we can maybe start to get into some tools now and start there. Yeah. No, that is an excellent question. Um, so I think the biggest thing with slip, shift workers is knowing this information now, and a lot of companies I think are going down this road, um, they need to be disciplined. Just like an athlete needs to be disciplined in their nutrition, a shift worker needs to be disciplined in their exposure to light. So that means when you're on shift, like try to minimize that crappy white light. Um, a lot of companies now are investing in blue-enriched light to just optimize and mimic uh, natural sunlight exposures. Do not wear possible. blue light blocker glasses when you need to be getting yes. light. So when you want to be alert, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what happened yes. to our world with the blue light blocking. I'm like, don't block the blue light <laughs> when you want to yes, be alert. When you want to be alert, that is exactly it. You use those blue light blocking glasses. When actually you're driving home from your shift exactly, in the morning yes. and it is sun out and you, you have to wear shades. And like, yes, that's you have to maybe supplement with caffeine too because that is somewhat dangerous like because they're already sleepy. But um, that's going to at least set them up for they can take like their first long nap um, and then do things in their day and then take an additional nap or get an additional sleep period with, again, blocking out the light. Um, so they're basically on a reverse schedule of humanity where they have to pretend that when they're working, they're out like where I am now in South Florida, like exposed to sunlight all day. And then when they're, the rest of the world is experiencing sunlight, they have to be vampires and block out the light as much as possible. So the message to folks is when you want to be 
alert. <laughs> you want to get as much blue light as possible. When you need to be sleepy, you want to try to block that that light as much as possible. And that applies if you're, you know, up during the day. That applies if you're, you know, sleeping during the day. Like you use that as a principle. And then maybe just talk as it, as it relates to this, as we think about strategies to, to reduce chronic sleep debt and, and get folks kind of on a better path. You know, obviously the light behavior is, is massive and that's a strategy and, and a tool. Maybe talk about you know, the other three core anchors. So obviously sleep-wake time being one of those really important anchors, how to think about that in the context of, of night shift, and we can just reverse that and apply that to other folks who are who are uh, sleeping nocturnally. And then in exercise and maybe in meals too, because I think those are, you know, those these are the levers that people can pull to kind of mitigate the effects and, and really get themselves in a position where their body is, is primed to actually sleep and get the quality sleep that you're talking about. Yes. I, I love the set, the last one about exercise and meals because uh, I have some differences of opinion based on what the current literature is. Oh, inter- oh gosh, but, I can't wait to hear but it. But I, yeah. I will talk about that after okay. I talk about sleep and wake time. Beautiful. Um, so the biggest thing to just getting restorative sleep is consistent sleep and wake time. So whether you're a shift worker or a day worker, sleep and wake time, the time you go to bed and the time you wake up needs to be consistent. And the reason for that is that is optimizing the circadian rhythms. So we have the the biological clocks of the body. There's one in every single organ. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the team who discovered the one in the skeletal muscle. So even our skeletal muscle has a circadian clock that directly manipulates how quickly we get into restorative sleep. Sleep and wake time has to be consistent if you want restorative sleep. We know that from tons of literature in humans and mice and using genetic manipulation, like everything. We, um, we've seen that too, just in the in the the research that we're doing, kind of internally, and in, in the one that we did with the Army Alaska, very evident. You know, we had a thousand paratroopers, um, and we're you know I'm still working on analyzing all this data, but but it was yeah, I mean it was incredible to see the relationship between individuals who state had stable sleep wake time and their perception of control over their lives, their perception of just their own resilience. Sleep wake time was just something that folks need to. It's just a behavior that. You know, it can it obviously, as you're saying, affects every every cell in the body, every clock in the body. Yeah, and we have the opportunities now, like Whoop with the sleep coaching platform. It will tell you, like, oh, you should start going to bed. You know, like it's, you know, th- there's really no excuse now because we all mostly have our phones. Even even operators in austere environments, they still have their phones. Um, and so the other thing is exercise and meals. Okay, so I've been fortunate enough to be a reviewer for a lot of the studies that have come out recently. I feel like this is going to be epic right now. I'm like, I cannot wait to hear what you're going to (laughs) say. Well, it just goes to show like what happens when you stay in your foxhole and you don't cross collaborate with exercise physiologists. Oh my, thank Uh, you for saying that. Yes. Yeah. So, and I'm not an exercise physiologist, but I'm an athlete and I've been an athlete my entire life. And I know if I work out too soon before I go to bed, like there's one time the buttery bros came uh, to Fort Knox to film one of the open workouts. And like we did the open workout at like nine at night. I, I did not sleep at all that night because <laughs> I was just, just wired. wired. Yeah. I'm the um, same. I, I cannot work out at night. I really struggle. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll lay in bed for hours. And we know this from elite athletes like hockey players. Hockey players have a 
tremendously difficult time falling asleep. I've done a little bit of work with the Washington Capitals and all of them, that is their biggest complaint as hockey players is I cannot fall asleep after a game. My son plays ice hockey and they, you know, he's in high school, he's a freshman playing varsity and like literally their ice hockey times are just, they make me so angry. Like he doesn't get home until like 1030. But what I did in his bathroom where he takes a shower is I put a super dim light in his shower. So like once he gets home, like lights are super dim. He goes in his bathroom, it's super dim. So it, it I, that actually has helped him. I saw a big difference That's um, for awesome. him. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, just when you're working with people like that, that people don't realize the impact of light when they get into their home environment and, and how that just either keeps you on that path to be alert or not any light into the retina is going to, you know, tell your body to, to, to be awake. So yeah, that, that's had a huge impact and he's been able to fall asleep much faster as a result. That is so awesome. I might actually, I'm going to give you credit, but like when I continue to work with the Capitals, I'm going to take it. So Tell them that they get their, they're, their they're going to win another Stanley Cup because of that. So no, <laughs> <laughs> love it. But okay. So the issue is, is I read these studies and they never, not a single study that says, Oh, you know, exercise an hour before sleep doesn't actually impede sleep is because not a single study gets the rate of perceived exertion above 50%. Yep. And I'm like, there is your problem right there is because even if they are untrained athletes, 50% is just like taking your dog for a walk exactly. before you go to bed. Yep. Like you're never going to disrupt sleep because you never exceed 50%. And so like I have yet to see the dose response curve because I guarantee I don't, I don't have the money or the like bandwidth to do it. But as soon as that one research does the dose response curve, you will see sleep disruption. If they're looking to kind of have their system anchor to exercise, what would be your recommendation for individuals just generally? So three to four hours before you your bedtime. So the people who are doing like the late night CrossFit classes, like the 7 p.m. that finishes at 8 they're cutting it close, especially if their bedtime is around 10 or 1030. Um, because after they go to class, they're not going to bed. They're going to go home and eat, um, which can further disrupt their sleep. Because if they're eating things high in the uh, glycemic index, that can delay their amount of time in restorative sleep. Yep. So those blood sugar spikes, yeah, will we'll end up fragmenting. So, and again, it might not impact sleep onset time, but they will show up in disturbances and, and your point time in deeper, these deeper stages. Um, yep. so, so meal timing, you know, I, and I know, you know, you think about intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding and how that relates to your circadian clock. How do f- folks who are working at night, you know, or sleeping at night, you know, how, how do we think about time restricted feeding? Kind of what are the best practices there in terms of really helping us fall asleep when we want to fall asleep and, and stay in deeper stages of sleep? So I will say I'm not as much of uh, an expert in like time restricted feeding and circadian rhythms. Um, I do know there is a very close relationship. Um, and intermittent fasting is one of those things that further uh, makes the circadian clock be best optimized. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway is to make sure that if you are an athlete and you need to eat something before you go to bed because you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night starving, it's the worst feeling in the world. Like during CrossFit training season, worst feeling ever is to wake up hungry. But make sure you're st- sticking to a low glycemic food um, so that you don't have the sleep disruption um, or a sleep fragmentation because of 
uh, spikes in blood sugar. So food that's bioavailable, high fat, you know, yogurt, um, cottage cheese, uh, which has a dual benefit of, you know, being high in casein protein, which kind of you've yep. seen in the research kind of helps with the recovery process. Um, but we just don't want it. Um, we don't want your body having to work hard to digest when you're ty- trying to sleep. Both are parasympathetic exactly. activities. Your system is going to um, bias toward digestion, obviously, as opposed to sleep. So I think that we see this very, very clearly in the data. And, and we're just hypothesizing that that's kind of the dynamic or the phenomenon going on. Um, And and we actually have a a big study with five different schools, 700 female athletes, um, and we're looking at pre-sleep feeding and and how it impacts all sorts of factors that we, you know, metrics that we track. So it's been interesting to kind of see some of those dynamics play out in in that population. Oh, that's awesome to hear because that's exactly what we need is like I mean, that's what I love about what you're doing, Kirsten, and like the whole Whoop team is like you're you're taking the like the big data approach and working with tapping into some of the hardest to reach demographics. Yeah. Yeah. With huge amounts of longitudinal data. It's been great. These are questions, you know, that are related to human performance that, you know, if we can get some answers to just can we can just further drive these you know, optimal behaviors that are going to help us do the foundational things that, you know, set us on a path to lead the richest, healthiest life, you know, possible. And, um, and, and I think some of these things sound kind of trivial, like, oh, well, stopping eating, you know, three to four hours before bed, like, what really I need to do that, but it, it is the difference between potentially living five to 10 years longer. Like it's like, it's actually, you know, not trivial when you think about your lifespan. And, and I, you know, don't want to be an alarmist or, you know, kind of overreach here. But I, I think that these behaviors actually add up in a, in a profound way and impact our system. And and I think, you know, back to our original point here on this theme is that if we can do some of these very simple things related to light, you know, fueling, exercise timing and sleep-wake timing, we set our system up to be just a more effective, efficient you know, system or machine and, you know, which then, you know, protects us potentially from a lot of these disease states. So maybe let's like just talk briefly about, you know, maybe the top three, you know, strategies and tools folks can do during the day to either kind of make up for uh, insufficient sleep or sleep debt. Um, you know, what are the things that they can do today that kind of mimic that? Um, so, you know, maybe naps, yoga, nidra, breathing, you know, we can kind of hit on your your point of view on top, the top the top few. Yeah, so number one, napping. Um, we have tons of data for that now in athletes, military, you name it. Napping is a wonderful thing. Um, two, um, if you can't nap, Something like yoga nidra, this guided meditation practice to try to get some level of uh, sleep. Like you, you might not hit the deeper stages like you do at napping, but you might hit the later stages. And so that is a, that is a, a means too. And then the last one, it seems counterintuitive. So it's, a, it's more of a like short-term acute sympathetic activation for long-term parasympathetic activation is um, heat exposure or cold exposure. I personally, uh, so we did a, a small case study, a small longitudinal case study with uh, elite CrossFit athletes when I was at Emory doing my fellowship, um, and we actually found that cryotherapy, um, so that like two-minute bolus of cold exposure actually has prolonged parasympathetic effects, um, and it actually increases self-reported sleep quality and also uh, total sleep time. Um, independently of days of training, time of training, and it 
again, it was small sample size, and but it was longitudinal. So I think that's also a good thing too, is heat or cold exposure. Yeah, I, I love that you said that. Like, I, I think there seems to be more and more uh, studies coming out to support that. And, and in fact, I think there seems to be a, a protocol that validated in some recent research that came out in Cell in, in 2021, but basically says that about 11... 12 minutes of, of cold exposure per week in, you know, two to three minute increments, you know, four times a week is, is kind of the protocol. And um, they say, you know, just be in the, you know, the temperature is uh, basically whatever you feel is like uncomfortable and you want to get out is to stay in there for a couple minutes, do that a few times a week. And, you know, you, you'll see improvements in sleep and, uh, and then there has a downstream effect to, you know, improving immunity. And, you know, I think given, while it's, you know, short-term sympathetic, it, it's to your point, it's got this parasympathetic kind of longer-term effect that is uh, super powerful in reducing or just making you more resilient and more robust. Well, let's see, we've got, we tapped naps, yoga nidra, uh, maybe just breath work as kind of a final strategy or tool folks can engage in. Yeah. So um, I have used the box method and I've also used uh, the, the Wim Hof technique. Um, I really like the Wim Hof technique because it, you know, I, there's a lot more evidence based for breath work now, but he, his work was kind of the first to like make it big time. I mean, his study ended up in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So you can't do much better than that. But, you know, similar to um, cryotherapy, like the Wim Hof method, method, it's acute sympathetic activation for long-term parasympathetic responsiveness. Uh, the box method, as you know, like, parasympathetic activation. Um, but that's really what it comes down to is, you know, whether or not something's going to keep you or prevent you from getting quality sleep or not getting quality sleep. It's the amount of sympathetic versus parasympathetic activation in the day. And if you could pair the two, then that's awesome. And breath work is a great way to like voluntarily induce parasympathetic activation. Yeah. And I think, you know, I say this over and over, you know, to whoop ice cream for the rooftops every single day with my colleagues as, it, as, as we try to like develop features and give folks access to some of these tools inside our app. But, um, you know, I, I think that they're understanding that we have way more control over our autonomic health than we think we do, you know, and I think at the end of the day, you know, I think our, our mission at Whoop is to help people understand their physiology, help them take control of their of their body in, in a way that gives them, you know, agency over their health. And I think one of the things that, you know, people can use the, the Whoop app for is just literally understanding, okay, I might not have this the sleep that I need that night. That means I'm going to be inherently more activated today. Like I, my, my cortisol levels are going to be higher. I'm going to be, um, my system is not going to be working as effectively, but I can mitigate the effect of that with my breath work, with yoga nidra, with potentially taking a nap. Like I can offset the deleterious effects of maybe not getting the sleep that I need and actually build a healthier lifestyle that will actually help me get the sleep that I need in the future. You know, start to unwind maybe some of these um, vicious, you know, negative cycles that occur when we're not getting enough sleep. And taking control of the behaviors when you're awake is t- to me the, the shortest path to kind of helping improve your, your, your sleep at night. 100%. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about culture. Despite, I think, a lot of education around sleep, and I think people are intellectually, rationally understand, wow, I, okay, I need to spend more time in bed. But maybe just talk about 
the rise of, of sleep debt, you know, we see this in, in the data and its broader implications on society and culture. And, you know, what are some strategies or, or ways that leaders can think about their organization to really try to shift this mindset mentality? So I think the biggest thing with leaders is presenting them with the objective data to show otherwise that, like, prioritizing people's time for sleep, uh, not just at home, but napping at work is the way to go. Um, we actually had that, I, I love telling the story in the army, we had that big success because I obviously work for the most anti-sleep promoting organization of them all. Like it's better now, but it's still bad. Um, and so a few years ago, we wanted to get sleeping pods um, at Walter Reed for the residents and the night shift workers. And at first it was like met with the ultimate amount of criticism. So much so that um, and I'm, I'm actually surprised I still have a job because of this, is we took anonymous quotes from senior leaders that said they didn't want soldiers napping on the job. If they did, that meant they were lazy. Um, you know, only lazy people have time for naps. And so we took those quotes and we put evidence refuting those quotes um, and published it in the flagship journal of sleep as uh, a letter to the editor. That's bold. Um, <laughs> and sure enough now, Walter Reed has napping pots. Oh, that is um, just such a success so, story. Unfortunately, you have to be, I mean, I know that's actually my job in the army is I'm, I'm the person that I think senior leaders hate because <laughs> I tell them, no, like sleep is important. Um, and I, you know, prevent them from doing more. But that's exactly what society needs, is we need this cultural shift towards sleep. Allison, thank you so much for all your time today. I think this has been, you know, an incredible discussion. And I just, it's just been an honor to, to kind of be able to ask you questions and, and, and tap into all of your expertise across these domains. And, and just, and thank you for your uh, being a part of our Women's Performance Collective as well. Uh, I think there's going to be an opportunity to do some really cool research with that group um, just around women's health and reproductive health and uh, kind of that, that spectrum. So ex- excited to kind of tap you for, for some of that work as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you are doing incredible work, Kristen. Uh, I appreciate that so much. Yeah, we're, we're excited about it. And um, yeah, but it's only possible with, you know, collaborators like yourself and, and, and honestly, the, the foundational work that you've done in, in this space, frankly, you know, as it relates to sleep, you know, has really inspired a lot of the ways we think about, you know, the, our data sets and, and what we can, you know, kind of look into like more, more deeply. And yeah, just so appreciative. So thank you. Thank you to Dr. Brager and Kristen for coming on the WHOOP podcast. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a rating. Don't forget you can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, get 15% off a WHOOP membership. Check us out on social at WHOOP, at Will Ahmed. Wishing you a very green week. We'll be back next week. Stay healthy. Stay in the green. Stay in the green.